gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, and I guess you're going to notice right away this is not Jeff Maldron, uh, but uh, this is uh, Ron Fuller today, and uh, I'm actually, uh, I want to welcome the fans for joining me today, and uh, Jeff Baldron is having a little problem, uh, and uh, my best wishes go out to him. He's under the weather today, and uh, and hopefully he's going to be back real soon. But uh, I do have a host today, and uh, this is a very unusual one. Actually, you hear him on every studcast. And today uh, I've asked him to sit in in place of Jeff, and uh, he was kind enough to do so. And this is the voice of the studcast, I call it. And uh, that's Dave uh, Summers down there in uh, Alabama. And uh, Dave, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey man, Ron, thank you. I appreciate this. This is, is just so cool to me to be a part of the studcast, even in the small way as I've been, but to actually be a co-host on the show is really, really awesome. I've followed you on so many studcasts. And again, I want to say, as you mentioned, our best wishes to Jeff Bowden. We hope he gets well soon and is back on the studcast as well. So a, a lot of excitement here. You're going to be talking about a lot of folks that I'm familiar with today. I think that's really cool. So uh, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. Yeah, it just makes sense today. It'd be a great day for you to join us because as you said, uh, we're going to talk about uh, several, three guys in particular, Don Carson, Dick Dunn, and Leon Baxter, who uh, you're very familiar with having grown up in that part of the country where they came from. So this is a good one for you to be a part of. And, uh, and if you don't mind, my man, I think I'm just going to get to rolling on. I got my horse all saddled up here, and uh, let's just uh, jump right in and uh, and let's take off on this program. Cinch it in and get going. What you got, Ron? Okay, uh, this one's going back in time. Uh, you know, I, I've been telling fans in the last couple of programs about what a coincidence. We're almost in the same time frame. But this program, 44 years and four days ago, exactly from the date of the release of this stud cast, we were wrestling in the Knoxville Coliseum on uh, March 14th in uh, 1976. So, uh, you know, we're going back quite a few years here, and, uh, and and this is going to be the last Coliseum show until September 17th of 1976. We're going to discuss this card today, obviously, the TV show on March 13th, which is the day before this card, and the results of the card, the attendance, and the payoffs. Kind of similar to what we usually do. And uh, and I'm going to include the five other cities that uh, had wrestling during that course of the week and their attendance and uh, basically uh, recap all the figures for the week. Then uh, we're going to 
sit under the old learning tree, which is becoming quite popular. And uh, today's question is, and if Ron wanted to get back into wrestling, how would he change the sport to make it more like the 1970s and 80s wrestling? I love that question. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to uh, getting to that at the end of the program. So let's begin with that uh, March 14, 1976 show in Knoxville's Coliseum. Like I said, it's the first March event. We only had two matches in the month of March. And one of them, the first one is in the Knoxville Coliseum. This card has three championship matches on it and a special event that's showcased by the breakup of the Tennessee Tag Champions, the big problem that uh, developed between Butch Malone, Homer O'Dell, and, and Norvell Austin. So uh, all four of these matches featured new combinations of opponents, basically from the Saturday two weeks earlier, the last time they had wrestling, which was in Chihuahua Park in Knoxville. And this show has a combinations of opponents and angles that were completely new. And that was most unusual. Kind of represented a booking change. And it also represented a, a hefty change of direction for the entire Southeastern Territory. So Coliseum card had four main events on it, seven matches in all. First main event, first ever defense of the new Southeastern Tag Championship belts by the new champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. And uh, obviously, they're going to be defending against the superstars. Second main event, first ever meeting in the history of Southeastern between myself and Don Carson. And it's for the Southeastern Championship that Don Carson holds. Third main event, the personal grudge match after the split of the Tennessee Tag Champions between Norvell Austin and Butch Malone. From then incident that happened two weeks before, uh, Malone got a really bad cut, 14 stitches it took to sew him up, and uh, Homer hit him with his steel helmet. And uh, obviously, those two guys are going to go at it for the first time, and they're going to face off with Butch Malone's going to have Ron Wright in his corner and Norville Austin's got Homer O'Dell in his corner. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Then uh, the last main event of the afternoon features the return of the Mid-American champion, Dick Steinborn. He's going to defend his title against the very popular Charlie Cook at this point in Knoxville. He's become a star. Uh, Tor Tanaka is in this event. He's in his first ever handicap match for Southeastern. And he's wrestling against Dennis Hall and Paul Diamond. They have to tag back and forth into the ring. But he's going to wrestle and beat both guys. He has to beat both guys to to win the match. And uh, I don't think the two of them have much chance against Tanaka. In fact, he could have probably wrestled four and uh, beat all four of them. So the opening match was scheduled to be another George Goulas match with uh, Jerry Myatt. But uh, after what happened in the first Coliseum show, I took George Goulas off of any Southeastern events ever in the future. And uh, <laughs> George made his first and last appearance. A few weeks back, the last Coliseum show. And now Les Thatcher is going to replace him in this show. So before we discuss the results of this card, let's talk about the, the TV show. And it was a great one. Uh, and uh, the day before, on the 13th of March, it had four matches and a great personality profile, three videos from two different Knoxville events. It had everything on it. Opening match got introduced by Phil Rainey in the ring with DeVoy Brunson and Rick Connors. And uh, business picked up pretty quickly as the superstars came into the pack studio, man. Uh, the, the superstars were red hot at this point. Crowds uh, weren't just filling the buildings at this point. They were filling that studio, too. Uh, we were limited. We had about 200 seats 
chairs around three sides of the ring. Had to have one side free for cameras. And uh, then, you know, but when uh, those 200 seats were full, then we started putting people standing behind those people in the seats. Right. And this studio just kept, we packed as many as we could get in there. The hey, show started recording at noon on Saturdays, and the fans started arriving. They lined up outside the side entrance of the building. They started about 8 o'clock in the morning. I would get there about 8 o'clock, and there would be four or five people standing there four hours before the studio was going to be used. By 10 a.m., the line was out into the street usually. Hundreds of people got turned away every Saturday afternoon because they could not get into television. And it was just a rare experience to be part of those crowds that did get in. The ones that got in there, gosh almighty, they were screamers. They were loud, and they were just extremely happy to be a part of that Southeastern history back in the day. Hey, was there an admission to get into the TV tapings? Nope. You know, and that made people line up. They wanted to come, obviously. But I think we could have charged, and it wouldn't have been right. a problem. They would have still come. But uh, because we didn't charge, it just seemed like fans got in there for free. And yeah. they were they were on fire as some of the wrestlers. Speaking of being on fire, that's what the superstars were in this first match. Those guys really came in hot, man. They they turned on the flames, so to speak, and uh, and they left that crowd uh, booing that after they won their the usual way they won most of their matches. They they had a very unique style, and they would get both wrestlers they were against in the ring, and they would put the Boston Crab on both of them. It was like a double submission. They liked to do uh -huh. it. They liked to beat both of them at once. So after the replay and the superstars were gone from the studio, Robert and Jimmy joined Les at the set, and they brought those beautiful Southeastern brand-new tag belts that they had. The fans welcomed them, obviously. They had a big, huge ovation. Uh, Les had the director upstairs, uh, Bill Kincaid, uh, start the video, of the first video we're going to show of this day. And it's the Southeastern tag title final match with Jimmy Golden and Robert against the superstars that from the tournament two weeks earlier in which they won the belts. And it was their first opportunity to watch this match. And they got excited about it, Rob and Jimmy. And the, and the studio audience got excited about it too. <laughs> At the end of the match, Robert had one of the superstars and the fuller leg lock. And uh, the other one had Jimmy and a Boston crab, an unusual situation. You got two teams and one guy's got a submission hold on one spot and the other guy's got a submission hold on the other team. And so the referee kind of stands between them, and there's nothing else he can do, and he's waiting to see who's going to who's going to give up first. Right. And both of those holes were extremely painful. So the crowd in the arena, man, they sounded like 10,000 people on that video. And when the superstar, uh, the one in the leg lock that Rob had on him, he started uh, swinging his arms, man, and that was the signal for the referee that he was finished, he was done. So the building erupted when that happened. Robert then uh, was really smart. He praised Jimmy for how long Jimmy lasted in that Boston Crab, because that is an extremely painful hole. And uh, Jimmy had to hang on longer than the superstar in order to win that championship. So Jimmy deserved a lot of credit for that win. They praised both of them, praised their opponents. And, uh, you know, because the down superstars, it was their first loss ever. So they had wrestled a tremendous team. And then now Rob and Jimmy were the first team that ever beat the superstars. And they wanted to be defending champions. Rob and Jimmy made that really clear during this little short interview segment with that video. And uh, 
They wanted to return. You know, they're going to give the superstars a return match right away. Obviously, tomorrow afternoon, they were going to wrestle the superstars and, and give them a chance to win the belts. When the video was finished, Les went to commercial break. They had themselves a little fan fest, man. They went out and shook hands with all those fans in the studio. It was great to watch that, you know. That that really was a nice little little spot for Jimmy and Rob. And the video, obviously, it conveyed the excitement indoor, the Chill Alley Park building. And it not only showed how they won the title, but uh, it also adds so much to the program. These videos, man, were just, they were crucial to Southeastern's growth and especially to these TV shows. After the commercial break, superstars and Don Carson get their chance. They come to the set for a two-minute interview. All three of them were prepared. They always were. You know, I think they sat back there in the dressing room and decided who's going to talk and what they're going to say. Carson started with the fact he knew sooner or later he was going to have to defend against me. Uh, He was prepared, and so was his peanut butter, he said. That was his black glove. And he shook his black glove at the camera like he always did and said, I I should get ready to bleed. Ron Fuller, you better get ready to bleed. That's usually what he did when he hits you with that glove. You were going to bleed. Superstars dove in with just as much enthusiasm as old Don. They promised it was going to be their first loss that they had just had would be the last loss they would ever have. They were going to take care of Robert and Jimmy big time the next afternoon. They said they wanted every tag belt they could get. They'd had a whole bunch of them already. And this tag belts were new. And uh, they didn't belong around the waist of two punks like Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Uh, they said that usually they didn't try to hurt their opponents. But uh, <laughs> like they had done to Ron Wright, uh, you know, which they had busted his eye right on the desk and on Les Thastard's desk a few weeks earlier. and But they were going to make an exception this time tomorrow afternoon. They were going to leave no stone unturned and no body part unbroken. Oh. And uh, Southeastern Belts was going to be theirs next afternoon. Studios, the studio crowd didn't like it. They didn't agree with it. And they made that fact abundantly clear. Uh, so second match exploded the studio when Butch Malone entered. And uh, he got in the ring with a, a great athlete and a great wrestler who's got a tremendous future, who's young at this point, named Dennis Condry. Fans are really taken to the outcast of the Home Rodell group to uh, Butch Malone. They were going to get their first look at Butch Malone wrestling live in a single match. All they'd seen him wrestle in was tag matches, and they're going to get that same opportunity the next afternoon when he goes up against Norvell Austin in the Coliseum. It was a great match. Dennis Condry was young, but he was improving quickly. Butch, to me, he surprised me. He was much faster. Uh, in a single match, and I had seen him in a tag, and he had a lot more wrestling skills than I, I ever knew that he had. Uh, I could see he was going really going to get over as a babyface, and much better than I had expected he even would. He finished Condry off with a very impressive combination. He threw Condry over his shoulder, and he ran halfway across the ring and rammed him into the turnbuckles. Condry was upside down, and then he turned with Condry still over his shoulder, and uh, delivered a running stampede. He ran halfway or more than halfway across the ring and just dived on top of him with all his 275 pounds on top of Condry. It was the Bill Watts version of the stampede. That's what I call it. Bill Watts used to do that to a whole lot of guys, and uh, I'd even had that done to me by Watts before. (laughs) The fans had never seen that move 
and and they really got into it. I mean, they popped when they they saw it. They knew it was all over. And all of a sudden, Ron Wright appeared in the ring. He raised Malone's hand. They went together to the set with Les. They watched the video where Homer Odell teamed up to bust Malone's eye after he made another mistake. He had been making several mistakes in the last three weeks. Uh, he had hit both uh, Novell Austin and Tortanaka in one match accidentally. And in this particular match, he makes a mistake. Uh, Novell Austin's got my brother hooked. He's on the apron of the ring. Homer's on the floor behind Austin. And uh, Homer screams at Malone to hit the ropes on the far side and come back and catch Rob with a knee. And Rob saw it coming and moved. And uh, Malone caught Austin, and Austin fell off the apron on top of Homer. Gosh. Uh Homer didn't like it. (laughs) You know, Homer Homer went kind of crazy, actually. And uh, he pulled off his helmet, and he had a steel helmet that he wore all the time. And uh, Norvell sneaked around and grabbed Malone from behind, and and Homer hit him with that helmet. Uh, Fourteen stitches it took to sew him up. I mean, Malone didn't look too good right after it happened. And he still had a little bit of a black eye because of it. So after they did that to him, they rolled him up into the ring. And uh, Rob discovered him, and they stood there. Video showed him. They just stood there and watched and made no attempt to save him. So they lost their opportunity to win the Southeastern Tag Championship. But I don't think uh, Norvell or Homer cared about it. But when Rob and Jimmy left the ring, they had waited. They got into the ring, and uh, Malone was unconscious. He was laying there. He wasn't able to defend himself. And they just started putting the boots to him. I mean, they were stomping him like crazy. And happened to be Ron Wright was sitting up at the top of the building and uh, was watching the match. And he saw what they were doing to him. And uh, so Ron came down, uh, obviously, and uh, and he he helped run them out of the ring. And then uh, he and his brother, Don Wright, was there and in that same tournament. And they both helped Malone back to their dressing room, not to Homer and Austin's dressing room where he came out of. But uh, he wasn't going to go back there. I think they would have probably done it to him again. So Ron and Malone, they stayed at the desk for the interview after the commercial break. And uh, now they could really talk about the match in particular. They had watched it. Now they could get into the particulars about it because now it was an actual commercial break. So Malone said he knew he was a much better wrestler than Austin because, and this is the case with a lot of tag teams, that he had wrestled against Austin many times, that that's the way tag team partners worked out together. They didn't have another tag team very often. So they had to wrestle against each other, you know, and he said he wanted to prove to everyone he's a better man. And he felt Norvell was a traitor to him. Well, that was pretty obvious. Norvell held him while Homer <laughs> cracked him with a steel helmet. Uh-huh. So Norvell had to be the one who wanted to allow Homer to manage them. Norvell was the one that made Butch go for them being managed by Homer. And I don't think Butch ever got over that. Ron Wright finished it off, man, promising that Homer was not going to touch Malone and Butch would have every opportunity to show what he was capable of the next afternoon. Homer got involved, he said. He, you, you can imagine what he said. He was going to give one of them good old Tennessee dog whoopings. That's what he was going to do. <laughs> so, you know, they, they had a great little interview. And uh, next thing up, personality profile. And it's with the Mid-American champion, uh, Dick Steinborn. Some people called him Dickie Steinborn. I called him Dick Steinborn. And Dick started this, sitting in the lesson, him sitting in those two big chairs that they always use for personality profile. 
and Dick had his mid-American belt laying across his lap in front of him. And uh, Steinborn was a tremendous wrestling talent in 1976. He'd been a star since he was 17 years old. His father had been a wrestler. And uh, this is a real, was a really tremendous, uh, interesting profile that not only covered much of the career of Dick, but it contained a lot of information about his father. And his father was a world-class strongman and a wrestler named Milo Steinborn. Milo is still recognized around the world today as the guy that developed the popularity of the squat. You know, and, and that's still one of the basic uh, weightlifting criteria still yeah. today around the world. And all of that came from Milo Steinborn, who had tremendously powerful legs. In fact, uh, there's a photo on this stud cast. Uh, if, uh, if you get your stud cast on my website at tnstud.com, or if you just want to go to the website at tnstud.com and see this photograph, it is of Milo Steinborn. There's a car full of people crossing a bridge. They've taken one of the main struts out from underneath the bridge, and Milo is holding the bridge up with his legs. Wow. Pretty amazing shot. <laughs> you see the guy in the car running over the top of him, and uh, he's having no problem holding that car up. Don't know exactly how much car weight, but it was pretty darn impressive. And uh, there's another photo, you know, that uh, if you want to go and look on Google under Milo Steinborn, you see him actually picking an elephant up with his legs. What? Pretty. Yeah, an elephant. Yeah, it, it's an amazing picture. Both of these shots are amazing. You know, and if you want to, you can go to tnstud.com, take a look at them. Uh, either you can go to the gallery page or the studcast page. Look for episode number 139, and you'll see the shot of the car. And the other one was with Milo Steinborn. You go Google him, and you'll be able to see all kinds of powerful shots wow. on Milo. And right, uh, it reminds me that Milo's the guy we all skip leg day for, so... Anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, wow. I always hated to do squats, man. <laughs> but uh, Milo was a, a was a monster, and uh, and I knew him very well. He was the promoter for Orlando, Florida, the local promoter. He was there every Monday night when I used to go there and wrestle. And I remember being impressed by his hands when I would shake hands with him. You could tell how powerful he was. So. uh the type of thing, uh, you know, uh, that, that we were doing there, and we showed these photos. Dickie showed the photo of Milo uh, holding the car up, and he also showed the photo of Milo with the elephant right on the program. That stuff just wasn't done back in those days on any wrestling programs anywhere in the world. I was going to say also that it's not done today either. You just don't see those type of events on TV today. It's all or whatever, I guess, however you would want to say it, it's all just completely done differently. Yes. You know, and then back in those days, we were doing things that weren't being done. So, uh, right. you know, we could show photos and uh, there's going to be a couple of other things that's going to happen during this show that's going to really get Dick Steinborn's attention. And uh, Steinborn, when, he, when Les started talking to him about his travels, he'd won titles in many different countries. He'd been all over the United States and and Les got in then to the match that he had had in the last Coliseum show against Jimmy Golden. And what a great match that was, a scientific match between two wrestlers that shook hands probably 10 different times during the match, uh, made tremendous moves, had the building standing on their feet for an actual, just a solid, pure wrestling match until the very end. And Steinborn 
hit Jimmy with a cheap shot and uh, got the win off of it. So, uh, you know, uh, Les watched that and he asked Steinborn about it. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Steinborn wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't real happy about what he had done, you know, and he, and he said uh, he kind of apologized for it. He said he put Jimmy over and he, and he really put Jimmy over big time. You know, he, he said, I'd never done that type of thing. But Jimmy Golden was so good, and he, and I didn't expect it, that I feared he was going to beat me. You know, he, he was going to be actually win my championship. And, uh, you know, so he was he was pretty humble about it. And, you know, and then, then at the end, he thanked Les for the opportunity to be on what he called the most unusual segment of the show. He finished by saying, of all the places that he could now go to wrestle in the world, he thought this Southeastern Territory was a great possibility for him. Well, that was good news for me because I'm sitting up in the director's booth. I didn't know that he was really thinking about coming there. And it was also good news for fans from all over the Southeast because that guy was a great wrestling talent. So the revolving Southeastern wrestling statue, the bumper that we used with the statue going round and round, ran for about 10 seconds and then popped right back into the ring. Phil Rainey introduced, of all people, a young guy named Tommy Rich. Uh, and he's going to be wrestling against Norvell Austin. And when Austin and Homer Odell came into the studio, the crowd just seemed ready for it. They just erupted in booze. <laughs> and I could I could tell from the reaction Malone got in the last match and the reaction Homer and Norvell was getting in this one that the split between the two of them had worked. You know, as a booker, you never know what's going to work. But obviously, this had really worked. Norvell was ready. And he and Tommy Rich had a 10-minute match that would have torn down any house in the world. Any house show in the world would have uh, gone crazy to see this type of match. Norvell took the victory with his flying headbutt, and it looked devastating on the instant replay. Homer, his two remaining men, Norvell and Tanaka, came straight to the set. Homer demanded that the director show the video he had prepared earlier in the day so he could tell the real reason why Butch Malone was no longer a part of his army. Not that, you know, he, he said, not like those lies that Hillbilly Ron Wright and, and uh, Butch had told him earlier in the show when they watched the video. And the highly edited video started off at the end of the six-man Texas death tag from the last Coliseum show, uh, which was about a month earlier. And that's where Malone made the mistake, and he nailed Austin into Naka when, when he shouldn't have. And uh, Homer said it was about time he had the opportunity to show why Butch Malone wasn't qualified to wrestle for him. Then he went to another video two weeks earlier for the Southeastern Tag Championship. And it showed the same thing that uh, had been shown earlier, but it's his point of view now about Malone come flying off the ropes and went to hit um, Robert Fuller with a high knee and Fuller moved. And, and uh, you know, the way Homer put it, and Homer kind of talked like that, you know, he said, uh, Malone intentionally hit Norvell, uh, knowing Austin was going to land on me. I'm down <laughs> below him there, you know. So fans were cheering all of this. They loved that part of it. Homer was screaming, screaming, obviously, for them to shut up, shut up. That's about all he could say. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then he added, you know, Malone been a bitching all this time for far too long, you know, and, uh, and he couldn't control himself no longer. When he fell on me, I had to do something. And then he laughed as as he was hitting Malone in the head with the helmet, and the video showed it. You know, 
Then when he and Norvell rolled him back into the ring unconscious, he he just said, well, you know, we, we didn't need to help him. You know, he was worthless. Then Norvell and uh, they went to stomping him, and uh, and obviously Ron Wright comes to the ring. And then he jumps on Ron Wright, you know, and they, he said, you know, he said something about the, you know, that boy, he, he shouldn't have kept, he should have kept his hillbilly butt out of it. So uh, at the end of the end of the video, it showed a pretty much bloodied and bandaged Malone coming back after that match and the very next match in which I'm wrestling Tanaka and attacking. <laughs> he had his chance to get his hands on Homer. And Homer really down me. He's, he's, he's had four or five minutes of all this shouting, and he's pretty much blowing up. He's out of air, man. He's about done. And, and he's screaming, uh, you know, that uh, now the boy made the big mistake because ain't no man ever laid a hand on him that didn't pay. Something like that. You know, and the TV crowd, they were just enraged. The three of those guys left the set. Next interview. Double interview with Dick Steinborn at the set, and Charlie Cook was in Studio B alone. Uh, less, less through it, Studio B, Charlie Cook made a great humble. He, he was a tremendous humble baby face, former football player, great athlete. He thanked Steinborn for the opportunity to even have a title shot. And, and he had watched the personality profile, and he had seen that spot where uh, Dickie Steinborn had sucker punched Jimmy Golan, and he said, you know, I'm going to be watching for that. And But he ended up by promising to be ready, and he wanted to know if Dickie Steinborn had ever been hit by an NFL football tackle. Oh. Well, Steinborn's in the other studio. He hears it, and he answers it right away. He says, you know, something basically to the fact that, uh, that he'd very seldom see anyone not get up from a football tackle and that they weren't going to be playing football tomorrow anyway, man. So it was going to be a wrestling match, and he promised that there would be no punches in this one. He wouldn't need it to be the football players. I think he said something like that. Good, solid interview for Dick Steinborn, who was a tremendous, tremendous wrestler. Final match of the TV, 300-pound Phil Wickerson against me. Uh, it didn't last long. I finished him with a fuller leg lock in probably about four minutes and, and then went to the set for an interview after the commercial break. When the commercial break was over, Robert and Jimmy had joined me during the segment. They started talking first about their title events of the Southeastern Championships the next day. They'd been champions for almost two weeks and that they were getting used to it. They loved it, and they were going to give the superstars their second straight defeat, which is pretty hard to beat that team once, much less to beat them twice in a row. Uh, I took it from there. Dan Carson had been champion for far too long, defending against Charlie Cook, Ron Wright, He'd beat Jimmy Golan. He'd beat my brother. I was about the only one he'd, that had not had a title shot with him. You know, I basically said Carson won all those matches with his peanut butter. Basically, he cheated and used his black glove. And tomorrow, my plan for him was simple. I'm going to take that peanut butter off his right hand, and I'm going to feed it to him. And then I'm <laughs> going to use my dad's leg lock and break his scrawny leg and leave the Coliseum wearing that Southeastern Championship belt. All right, Ryan, it seems like a great spot for a break. And when we come back, we'll return with the results of the third Coliseum show of 1976. Maybe even some more historical wrestling impressions from the Tennessee stud. But first, we'll tell you about the new Super Studcast number 27 with the legendary Jerry Briscoe. 
Ron's Super Studcast are becoming legendary for their history with stars of wrestling's past. Super Studcast number 27, part one, is just another feather in his hat at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This one is all about two of the most famous wrestling brothers of all time, not just professionally, but in the amateur ranks as well. One was an NWA world champion, and the other is one of the most respected wrestlers ever and still involved in the sport today. Jerry Briscoe joins the stud in this one, not only to talk about his tremendous career that still continues, but also his great brother's fantastic accomplishments at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. You can relive the unbelievable wrestling history of these legendary brothers. Hey, we're back. The second half of the studcast, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, what were the results of the Coliseum show? And you've been talking March 14th, 1976. Let's go back in time once again. Well, Les Thatcher and Jerry Mott they had their first match. And uh, it was a 20-minute time limit match. And it ended up being a draw. It was a good match. Jerry Mott actually uh, impressed me a little bit. He'd been beaten quite a few times. But uh, he, he stuck with Les pretty good. When it was all over, he got the microphone. He challenged Les to another match in the future with a 30-minute time limit. And uh, Les Thatcher's a pretty darn good wrestler, and he accepted it right there in the Coliseum. The crowd really loved it. Wasn't going to get that 30-minute match that day, but uh, I think it's probably going to be on the next card for Knoxville. So Tor Tanaka, uh, managed by Homer O'Dell, he looked unbeatable, <laughs> as always. And uh, he chopped both of his opponents, Dennis Hall and Paul Diamond, to pieces, basically. I mean, he hit him with chops in the throat and chops in the head and chops in the back. And uh, and then he stacked them one on top of the other, and he pinned both of them at the same time. I mean, <laughs> it, it was like I, like I said earlier, I think he could have beat four guys. You know, I mean, but Tanaka at this point is a monster. He is really, really something to fear. You know, if you're a wrestler, you don't want to get in the ring with Tanaka too much. Charlie Cook and Dick Steinborn, they're in the next match. And uh, it's that uh, Mid-American title match. And uh, what a great match that one was again. This time, just like with the Jimmy Golden match, uh, Dick Steinborn ended up winning. uh, But this time, there was no punches thrown at all. Steinborn won after almost 30 minutes, right in the middle of the ring. The fans enjoyed this one almost as much as I did. I love these clean, pure wrestling matches. And Steinborn was so good at it. And, uh, you know, this match had a lot of tremendous moves in it during the course of it. A lot of handshakes between two guys. The crowd gave them a standing ovation for a clean wrestling match. You don't see that very often. And then after Steinborn's hand got raised, he went over and raised Charlie Cook's hand, which, uh, you know, that was a tremendous gesture. You don't see that very often in wrestling either. Yeah. And, uh, and it's probably a good thing because, uh, that one was a wrestling match because the rest of the evening is going to be, uh, wow, It's there's not going to be much wrestling in the rest of the day, the rest of that afternoon. So next up after this was a special challenge match. After the split of the Tennessee Tag Champions, Norvell Austin, managed by General Homer O'Dell, and he's against Butch Malone, managed by Ron Wright. And I could tell the crowd was ready for this one. I heard it from the dressing room when I was getting dressed. Uh, and that's a big old building there. And I was amazed that I could hear that crowd. As soon as Austin and Homer came from the back of the Coliseum toward the ring, 
you could just hear them crowd booing. And uh, then when Malone and uh, Ron Wright got, came from the side dressing room, there were totally different entrances into the building. They got the tremendous roar from the crowd, but it wasn't booze, that's for sure. The match was wild. Both men end up bleeding. Probably went more than 30 minutes. Uh, Malone used the same finish he'd, he'd done the day before on TV. He threw Norvell over his shoulder, and he ran him halfway across the big old 20-foot ring. And we had in the Coliseum, 20-foot square ring. Didn't see rings that big very much in the country. Uh, he picked him up, threw him over his shoulder, ran all the way across the ring, slammed him upside down into the turnbuckles. Then he turned around with him still up there on his shoulders, and he ran almost all the way across the 20-foot ring and dived on top of him. It's like, that's a, that's a tremendous finish, uh, you know. And the crowd, they, they just knew that was it. I mean, when he did that, the crowd popped, you know, and uh, it was a beautiful stampede finish is what it was. And and like I said, the crowd exploded and they just basically knew Norvell ain't going to kick out. There was only one problem that Malone had done this finish in the corner where Homer was. If he'd have done it on any other part of the ring, he would have won. But since he's in Homer's corner, Homer jumped up on the apron of the ring immediately ref didn't even have time to drop down to start the count and that forced the ref to go to homer to tell him to get down well when they did that ron Wright on the far side of the ring he overreacted instead of just getting on the apron he shot underneath the bottom rope and he was actually in the ring so homer was able to say point at ron Wright across the far side of the ring the referee had then to go to right homer jumped down as soon as the ref took off homer jumped back in the ring he uh, took off that same steel helmet that he had popped poor old Butch with a couple of weeks earlier and put all those stitches in his head, except this time he hit him in the back of the head with his steel helmet. Malone rolled off of Norvell, and uh, he was holding the back of the head when he did, and uh, and uh, Homer rolled Norvell on top of him and uh, slid out of the ring real quick. So when the, the, you know, and the referee had a hard time getting Ron Wright out of the ring, Ron wanted to argue about, hey, look at him, he's doing whatever. And by the time Ron Wright got out on the floor, the referee turned around, there's Norvell on top of Malone. And the homer's pretty smart. He went running around the ring to where Ron Wright was to draw Wright toward him to keep him from going over and making the save. So Norvell Austin got the win, you know, and, uh, those two guys, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, are just going to tear the house down in the future in Southeastern wrestling. They are going to have phenomenal matches together. Uh, it was time then for my first shot at Don Carson's Southeastern Championship. And again, the crowd was really ready. Uh, the old blonde head, the big old blonde haired Don Carson boy, he got <laughs> his normal rude reception. They hated him. They really hated him. And uh, and I got a great reception. I even got some goosebumps from it. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, really, really uh, couldn't believe how much people were into what was about to happen. I hadn't worked with Don Carson since 1973 in Australia. Uh, and, and I'd forgotten what a great smooth worker he was and, and what a great feel he had for the crowd. And I did exactly in that match what I promised the, on the TV the day before. I tried everything to get his glove off. And I got close on several occasions. And then finally, I got it. And the building exploded. And as I was trying to get it on my hand, he hit me from behind with a low shot. 
and I fell face first on the mat. I dropped the glove too. You know, when both of us got on our hands and knees about the same time, and the glove was laying down between us, he got to his feet first and he reached and got the glove as I was getting to my feet. But I didn't go after the glove then. I went right behind him and I put that full of leg lock on him. And the, both of us went down on the mat on our backs. The building went crazy. They knew he was beat and he was feeling the pain. One of the best shooting holes in the world at the inside toe hole is a tremendous finishing move. So uh, he was about to give it up, and then he motioned the referee to get closer. Like, you know, I want you to hear me when I give. And then he reached up and grabbed the ref and pulled him down on both of us. Uh, And I lost my hold when he did that, and the ref rang the bell. I thought he had uh, given up. You know, and I got up with my hand in the air. I, I was champion, thought I had won the championship. And uh, the referee did raise my hand, but then he had him announce that Don Carson was disqualified. Well, I couldn't win the title on the DQ, but he rolled out of the ring and, uh, and, he, and he, they handed him his belt, but then he collapsed. His leg was really hurting him, so he, didn't, he couldn't make it away from the ring. So the superstar came down to the ring they, like they were going to help him back to the dressing room. But instead of going to the dressing room and I'm standing watching them in the ring by myself, Carson points up there at me and both of them come. Here they come. About the same time they get started after me and on me, Robert and Jimmy come out of the dressing room and boy, everything got crazy then. Second referee had to come down. Uh, He tried to get me and Carson separated and he finally got Carson, took him back to the dressing room. The Southeastern tag match, it was already underway. Teams had been introduced, and the bell was rung. Uh, Everybody in the building was on their feet, uh, and they had never sat down since all this started. And uh, the tag turned into a brawl. It was no tag. In fact, the guys never separated and got in the corner. One got out, and uh, one guy on the other team out. They just stayed in there, all four of them, the entire time. And uh, Robert and Jimmy were able to rip the mask off the superstars. Nobody had ever done that before. They didn't get them off. But they got them far enough that they had both those guys bleeding. Uh, ref never got control of the match. Like I said, he never even got both teams in their corners. He didn't get close to having any control. But uh, fans didn't care. They were loving it. And uh, it was pandemonium there. Carson arrived finally back at ringside. I was long gone, 10 minutes. Uh, you know, I was gone. But Carson must have stood back behind that big old curtain in the Coliseum and watched the thing. And then he came back, and one of the superstars, Jimmy, was beating him in the turnbuckle in the corner, and he just shot Jimmy out on the floor where Carson was. And Carson loaded the glove, naturally, and he nailed Jimmy, threw him back in the ring. Uh, the bleeding superstar covered him. Uh, the ref couldn't, didn't see Carson. He was over there with Rob and the other superstar, and, and he came over and counted Jimmy out. And uh, they're the superstars They became the new Southeastern tag champions. The building wasn't happy about that one. It was the end of the night. The police had to come to the ring. The building, just uh, everybody just rushed toward the ring. The police had to escort the new champions and Don Carson back to the dressing room. And hundreds of fans followed them, trying to get to them. They really, really hated these three guys. Uh, it had been a spectacular day. but. It was going to be the last Coliseum event until September 17th in 1976 in the same year. 
We're not hey, going to be back in that building for six months. Hey, after a, a night like that, and you're going to be taking a break, what was the feeling after that night was over, after the highs and lows from a crowd that is just pumping, pumping and pulsating like that? Oh, yeah. You don't, you, you know, I mean, you get so hyped up that you're, you're, you're at midnight. You're still feeling it at midnight. It's, it, it takes a long time. That was an afternoon event. All those Sundays uh, during that winter time of the year were, we were wrestling on Sunday afternoon. Matches started at three, end about six. And, uh, you know, you didn't go to sleep. You couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you, you, it took you six hours to come down from an event like that. It was really, really hard. All right. So after a big night like that, what was the attendance on a big Coliseum show like that, Ron? Well, it was, it was a record, another record. And we just continually breaking these Coliseum record shows. Uh, this one was uh, 4,700. Uh, the gross gate was almost uh, $19,000, and that was another record, as well as the 4,700 fans. Uh, there were 17 wrestlers and two referees, and they the whole entire payoff was about $5,000. Uh, Thatcher, Les Thatcher, Jerry Myatt, Dennis Hall, Paul Diamond, uh, both the referees got about 150 each. Uh, Tor Tanaka, Charlie Cooks, Dick Steinborn, Ron Wright, and Homer O'Dell got 275 each, and Butch Malone, Norval Austin, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golan, Don Carson, each of the superstars, and myself, we all got about $350 each. Wow. Pretty decent payday for 1976. The other five cities that ran that week uh, drew a combined 11,000, more than 11,000 fans, 11,200 fans. That was another record. So uh, adding Knoxville's 4,700 to the total attendance from the other towns was almost 16,000 fans. Wow. You know, a tremendous, tremendous week. Another record, obviously. Total gross for the week was just under 50,000. That was a record. So, uh, no, we're just really, really got things going at this point. Uh, wrestlers average almost 900 a week. And 900 a week doesn't sound like a whole lot of money today. But if you uh, calculate that and then uh, and figure out what that's worth in today's money, that was a four thousand dollar week. That week, yeah, nineteen seventy money. That's pretty good for real. Yeah, that's it. That's pretty darn amazing, man. Uh, and I was getting wrestlers from all over the country, and and uh, we were making a huge reputation for Southeastern. It was going to open the door for some really great talent to come in the future. All right. Hey, Ron, let's talk about a new segment that has become really popular. We'll be the grasshopper. You'll be the master as we gather around today's learning tree. And it's an unusual one today. What you got? Well, today's learning tree uh, is really unusual. It The question comes from a gentleman named Arthur Compton. And he asked, if I wanted to get back into the wrestling business, how could I change the sport to make it more like wrestling of the 1970s and 80s? And that's an extremely interesting question. I mean, uh, how would you do that? So I spent some time thinking about it. And uh, I, first of all, I think it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to take it back there because of what Vince McMahon Jr. did in New Jersey. Uh, you know, he broke kayfabe and, uh, and he kind of let the genie out of the bottle, as some call it. They destroyed wrestling as we knew it by just basically saying it's not real. He's trying to avoid paying some tax in the state, in one state in the country for an athletic commission. 
and he thinks it makes sense to just say, well, it's a show. It's not real. And, uh, and it basically destroyed wrestling. And then once and for all, when Vince said those words, professional wrestling was, it was without a doubt, then to everybody out there, not real, uh, you know, and, and you can't put the genie back in the bottle, you know? No. So, uh, so what it always made wrestling work was the true fans willingness to believe strong enough that wrestling was real, that even to the point that they would argue with those that didn't believe it, you know, but without that wrestling, as we knew it, it was never going to be the same and wrestling as we know it today will never be the same. So Vince Jr. had paid the price for what he did, obviously. And anyone that uh, looks at his, his uh, WWE TV audiences and his attendance at his, uh, his weekly and events uh, know just how much it's the price he has paid. Instead of having those sold-out buildings, now they put all the people for a television on one side of the building and darken everything else so it looks like you've got a crowd, but they have nobody in those buildings. So many others tried to compete with WWE since, since those days and since Vince did that and uh, make wrestling promotions work. But nobody's had any success. The AEW and, uh, you know, NWA, there's another NWA out there. Even Japan, New Japan, the, nobody's having any success at taking it back to where it used to be. Uh, today's number. With all the present wrestling companies combined, can't even come close to equaling what wrestling was in the 1970s and 80s. So uh, if you just look at the number of wrestling companies since Vince broke kayfabe, it's easy to see the professional wrestling, which was once thriving in America and around the world, it's going to never recover to that level of the 70s and 80s again. Right. Not only are the millions of fans gone, but also gone is the believability. Uh, of the style of wrestling in the 70s and 80s. Uh, my learning tree from the last episode, I put the blame basically on the lack of selling in today's wrestling as to why the sport is not as good as it was in the past. But it, it goes much further and much deeper than that. The, the scripted interviews of today and the dead matches and the dead finishes and then that combined with the total loss of kayfabe and, and it, we basically, uh, you know, Vince basically left two generations and Millions of for former wrestling fans behind, you know, uh, and under the present climate of wrestling with all its problems and everyone uh, having trying to rebuild it, I see only one way to bring it back. And uh, this idea that I got, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I think it might make wrestling better than it has ever been. So, uh, Mr. Compton, uh, I'm going to answer your question about how could I change the sport to take professional wrestling back to the 70s and 80s. And I think the sport is so far gone that I wouldn't even attempt to take it back at all. I wouldn't even try. I would go a totally different direction. I discard everything professional wrestling has become and not just take it back to the better days, but I take it where it's never, ever been. I mean, I, I would for the first time ever make it real. Totally real. No, I don't. I'm surprised nobody else has ever thought of it. Uh, I'd create a UFC type of event, features wrestlers only. Really? You know, I, uh, yeah. I mean, why not? You know, I mean, uh, look at look at how popular UFC is because it is real. You know, and right. all these matches uh, in my wrestling UFC type of event would be shoots. There, there'd be no punching and kicking. 
You know, it it would be different than the UFC style, but it used the same type of, and it even used the same type of wire octagon as the UFC. But mine would be the, the just like a wrestling ring, but it, I'd call it a quadragon. And that shape, it'll allow for extremely different strategies, man. When you got a guy trapped in those corners, now you the octagon has no corner. But the my wrestling UFC quadragon has four corners in it. And when you got guys trapped in that corner, there's no telling what you could do to it. I'd let anything, any type of wrestling hole be, be good. I mean, and I would include chokes as being legal. You know, you could choke guys out in UFC. You'd be able to choke guys out into my wrestling ring, you know, and any style from amateurs to the jujitsu style of one of the first and best UFC fighters, Horace Gracie would be legal. You know, Horace Gracie was one of the stars of the original UFC stars, and he was just a wrestler. He didn't do any punching. He didn't do any kicking. He just took guys down and he choked them out. So that would be the style of these matches. Uh, you could win by pinfall or you'd win by tap out. It'd be like a showcase for professional wrestling in a form and fashion that it had ne- has never been done. It'd be the first ever legitimate wrestling contest in the history of the sport. I'd hire the best scouts of amateur talent in the world and the best shooting trainers in the world to build the greatest wrestlers on earth. I'd challenge. Then, then what you do, you've got something that's real, something that's totally different than anybody's wrestling that's out there now. And then I'd go and challenge these present wrestling companies to allow my wrestlers to compete against their wrestlers for their titles. And if they refused, then I'd challenge their best to enter enter my professional wrestling quadrant against the best wrestlers alive. I'd do everything possible, make it absolutely clear that my company was the only real professional wrestling in the world, presently or in the past, that had ever been real. And uh, it'd be crystal clear from the beginning. Fans would watch it and they'd know that it's real. You know, the matches themselves would prove it. So it'd require completely different training. Slams and suplexes, any kind of those would be legal. Uh, in shoots, there would be no need for a regular ring. Because when you're in a shoot, you don't throw guy into the ring and into the ropes. When you're shooting, you want to keep your hands on him. You want to finish him. You don't want to give him an opportunity to bounce off the ropes. There is no ropes. You just go after him. Uh, none of these maneuvers are real. When you throw guys in the ropes, you know, that's not real. I mean, you don't win wrestling. You should never win a wrestling match by throwing somebody into a rope and then coming off and doing something to them. Makes no sense. So you don't need to teach selling. That's what we talked about in the last uh, learning tree. Why would you need to teach selling? I'm talking to, you know, no one would be selling because it's real, you know, and everyone would know it. Not just the wrestlers, but the fans would know it. Uh, I'd created different weight classes and champions for each of them. In other sports, from the lightest to the heavyweights, I would have different weight classes, different uh, uh, big monster guys and the small guys, but all of these matches would be real. I think the concept and the product would fascinate the media out there, as well as the fans. The media, they'd love to sell this product, you know, because for the first time, it would be real. And the fans would certainly buy it. I mean, you know, the media would be saying, hey, look at this. This this is the real thing, you know. And uh, the fans would, would, they would just gravitate to it. I mean, they want to see it be real. So why 
why would I try and take professional wrestling backward with its baggage and what and its reputation that it now has? I think the only future professional wrestling has is to take the critical question, is it real, out of the sport forever? You know, so, you know, I hope that answers your question, Mr. Compton. And uh, and I thank you very much for your question. It's uh, it's it's very uh, it's mind boggling. You know, it's been been interesting for me to think about this answer. And uh, I think if I was going to do it, that's the way I would do it. Not only did you answer Mr. Compton's question, you sounded like Colonel Sanders giving away the recipe to the fried chicken. So, hey, listen, folks know how you revolutionized the sport of hockey. And Ron, it, it sounds like you just gave away a, a tremendous idea. I mean, obviously, you've got it copyrighted or written down, so it's it's yours. But it sounds to me like this could be the next big thing for wrestling. Well, you know, I think it. if anything has any way to bring wrestling back, you got to take it where it's never been. And if you back up and you do it like it's probably was done maybe back in the 1800s, now, all matches were real. But as time went on, they... They got away from that. But if you took it back to that level, I think uh, you would really start to see wrestling thrive again. The numbers might far surpass what professional wrestling has ever done. I certainly don't doubt that. Ladies and gentlemen, the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller has done it again. The best storyteller in the history of wrestling is laying out the history of wrestling week after week with another Tennessee stud cast that is in the books and, and another amazing job, Ron. Well, thank you very much, my man. And, uh, I think, uh, if you'll just, uh, lead us out of here today and, uh, tell them how they can get in touch with me, man, on Facebook and, uh, and the other medias. That's absolutely easy to do. And remember our, our best wishes again to Jeff Baldwin, who hopefully is back on this Tennessee stud cast in the very near future. You can friend Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Simply like that page and automatically become a friend of a legend. At Twitter, you'll find him at, at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't miss Super Studcast number 27 with the legendary Jerry Briscoe. And also learn a lot about his brother, Jack Briscoe, the former NWA world champion. This one is special and fans should not miss it. Ron, anything to say about this upcoming Super Studcast? Yeah, we'd like to say a few words about it. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm going to be talking to Jerry Briscoe, who is a tremendous talent in his own right and and still in the wrestling business, uh, still working with WWE. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk a lot, whole lot to Jerry. We got a lot of information from Jerry, but we're going to talk about his brother, who was a r- instrumental in my my success in wrestling. He was a... To me, he was an icon. And, uh, you know, uh, when I started in Florida in 1970, Jack Briscoe was the Florida champion. And Jack spent a lot of time with me, and like he did with a lot of young talent that was in Florida back in those days. And this is a really spectacular Super Stud cast. It really covers the history of the sport, and especially two brothers that were as good as any that ever lived. That's awesome. You can find it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. And where are we headed off to next week as we saddle up once again? Well, we're entering the week of March 21st, 1976. The next day, Southeastern, uh, on March 22nd of 1976, Southeastern Wrestling is going to make its first ever appearance in the state of West Virginia. 
Uh, and uh, I'm going to tell fans how much work was necessary to make that happen. Uh, and I'll describe that card in West Virginia, the first one there, and the results of that first trip that we make uh, from Knoxville into West Virginia to wrestle up there. Uh, we're going to discuss also another week off in Knoxville with all the matches there uh, moving to Friday nights in the future. We're done with the Sunday afternoons. The winter is just about over, and we're ready to move back to Friday nights. We'll talk about that. And another really good learning tree next week about a subject that, that I've not dealt with yet. Uh, this one is totally new, and uh, this one is questions about booking the NWA champion. How often you booked them? How many shows each time they came in? Did they work for you? And why? You know, and fans are, you know, they, the, the National Wrestling Alliance that I was always a part of uh, had a unique way of handling their champion. And next week, we're going to delve into some of that, you know. And uh, before we go today, you know, uh, Dave, I'd like to thank all of my listeners, obviously. Uh, thank you very much for your support out there. And uh, may God bless us all. Hey, Ron, thanks again. It's such an honor. This is David Summers again sitting in for Jeff Baldwin. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of Arcadian Vanguard. Join us again next week for more great wrestling history with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, on another Studcast. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.